Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, I think unlike with the bushfires, the federal government sought to come out on the front foot on this issue. And perhaps that is a lesson from the bushfire response or... It was just the case that the the government had more of a heads up about how bad this could get. Hello, good people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and I am with... They're looking stunned. (laughs) (laughs) Do do we introduce ourselves? Yeah, introduce yourself. Sarah. Sarah Martin. Yes. Who are you, Chief Sarah? political correspondent Thank of The you. Guardian. Thank you, Paul. Paul Carp, political reporter. We're massively schmick and professional already. Yes, I'm with my colleagues, my favourite people in the world. And in this episode, which we are recording at the tail end of the day, Scott Morrison uh, unleashed the big stimulus package this week. So forgive us if we sound a little bit otherworldly because it's mm. been quite a big day. Uh, anyway, we, we've gathered because our collective view is that We've lived about 100 lives since the 31st of January, and the last time we gathered together to give our collective views of where politics was at was at the end of last year, and that was also a very big year. But seriously, we feel as though we've lived, it's been about 12 months. 2020 has been a big year. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. And we're not even, well, as we were recording now, we're not quite at the middle of March. But anyway, we thought this was a good week, really, to just try and tell the story of the year, both for our benefit, to square our own heads, and also for the benefit of you guys listening at home. So why don't we do that? So we obviously have to start with Christmas and where we got to Christmas time. We all went away for our holiday, and that lasted about two seconds, and then calamity ensued. And we all variously, I think, came back from holidays to one of the most catastrophic summers the country has ever seen. So let's start there. Bushfires. Scott Morrison, how did that pan out, Paul? Well, politics uh, didn't go on holiday or, or when politicians or Scott Morrison did, that became the story. So the whole uh, handling of, of the bushfires was tinged by, um, you know, that strange decision uh, to absent himself and go to Hawaii and not tell people about it. And then when he came back, apology mode and overdrive uh, of announcements, um, just a a fire hose of of announcements and and, uh, that $2 billion fund uh, in every direction to try and, and make good that the federal government was on top of it. Yeah. And Sarah, so how did that go? 
Well, yeah, there was this this sort of weekend in January where uh, you could see that they were frantically trying to pivot to be seen as doing something when we had that disastrous social media ad, you know, which was linked to Liberal Party fundraising, the announcement of the fund. It was, you know, Scott Morrison on the ground. You know, shaking hands. Shaking hands. He was he was on the fire ground. That didn't go well. He he was in Cabargo, I think it was, where he was heckled. He met and the that woman lady with a goat. To, yeah, refused mm-hmm. to, to shake his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't go particularly smoothly, but it was, I guess, a recognition that they needed to be doing something fairly urgently. And so where did that end up? What was the field evidence uh, for that? Obviously, Sarah, from memory, you wrote the first essential poll of the year, I think. I think that was I did. I don't yeah. have the numbers in front of me, but That's it was right. bad. Yeah. <laughs> it yes, was look, bad. Short story. The, the gloss had come off. That was that was the, the take-home message that I think in that poll for the first time um, since the election, uh, Albanese was ahead as preferred prime minister. I Correct me if I'm no, wrong, but that's right. my, my recollection. Yeah, that's right. um, and it was also interesting on a whole bunch of the um, sort of qualitative questions, like is Scott Morrison good in a crisis, the number of people who thought that was an accurate statement, had plummeted, um, you know, good under pressure. I can't remember the exact metrics, but a bunch of those things about his leadership style had really had really tanked. Mm. Where did that leave us, that whole experience, Paul? Well, I, I think you could definitely tell that the depth of feeling uh, that people had about it, the response not going well and them being disappointed in Scott Morrison personally. But you couldn't tell from that depth of feeling whether it would have a lasting impact. It was never clear if it rained and the fires went out, like would people have a lasting impression that you know, he wasn't impression. a capable mm. leader. Mm. And I, I think it's going to come down to, we're going to get on to well, predictions yeah. later, so yeah. I might leave it there. Yeah. Well, let's go back a step, right? So we've recounted events. Why do we think that he stuffed up the response to the bushfires? What do we think happened? Mm, that's, a re- that's a difficult question. Well, that's what it is. It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Like, wh- what do we think? Well, I think firstly he relied on a technically correct answer that emergency management is a state responsibility and yet yeah, just didn't realise that while technically true that people expect the federal government to be there um, pulling out all the stops in a crisis and learned that lesson too late. Mm. I think it's also, this was very different just because of the scale of these fires was unprecedented. And I don't think, I think, you know, perhaps if it had been like previous bushfire seasons, he may have got away with that technically correct, you know, view that this is up to the states. And usually we do see the states respond in these sorts of natural disasters. Mm. But the scale of these bushfires was something else. And I think people recognised that before Prime Minister's office recognised that and there was this sort of vacuum of national leadership that people had been looking for. And there was the complication of climate change too, Mm. which was a discussion that the government really didn't want to countenance Mm. uh, and, and really sort of tried to move heaven and earth to try and forestall that conversation almost to the point where it became so important not to acknowledge the catastrophe the sort of take-home message that came as a result of that was that they weren't on top of the practicalities of the event, mm-hmm. which is sort of genuinely interesting that it's uh, – I'm still sort of putting it together in my own mind. Yeah, he, he conceded that global warming contributes to bushfire seasons, but but we can't make any judgment about whether it contributed mm. to this particular mm. season. Mm-hmm. And so then – 
um, the, the less that the bushfires seemed a federal responsibility, maybe the better for him, he thought, because then I can't be tied to, you know, why we have an, such an inadequate climate change policy. But, you know, that wasn't a sustainable strategy. Mm-hmm. And again, there was a, a very rapid repositioning on that as well. Like he was first asked questions about that when it was the, mainly the smoke in Sydney. Yes. Um, and at that point, he, he didn't want to engage in that discussion. Fast forward a fortnight from that point, and he was then saying, oh, I've always said climate change was a factor in these sorts of things. So he very quickly realised that that was going to be an issue, um, but I think there was some damage done to the government. I mean, we, we had McCormack out saying only inner city Oh, lefties. yes. Um, oh, God, I'd completely forgotten So like, that. it, it changed very quickly, and, and, mm. and he was mm. obviously trying very hard. And, of course, we had Craig Kelly come out and say it, it was, com- you know, complete bunkum. So Morrison tried very hard to quickly reposition the government and try to make everyone forget that just three seconds ago they were denying that it had any link whatsoever. And where do we think all of that leaves the climate change debate? Because now I suppose the next kind of we're going to get to sports grants and the nationals in a sec, but we may as well, given we're on climate, Labor coming out of the break, choosing to lean in on the issue, announcing a net zero target by 2050, I suppose not stepping back from the broad set of measures that it took to the last federal election or or the broad parameters, I should say, the measures are obviously under review. So that was sort of at the tail end of the whole bushfire debacle, but then it looked like the same recurrence of stupid would overtake Labor's position on climate change too. So and again, that we're sort of pitching forward slightly because we're, we'll be into coronavirus in a minute, which is where we'll end up at the end. But what do we think about Labor's response? Well, I think the ANU election study showed that um, even before the bushfires, environment and climate change is an important issue in deciding people's vote. And so maybe it was a vote winner for Labor at the last election, just not in the right places. So as you've observed, they just keep turning up to this because they think it's the right policy response, um, that this is a genuine crisis and something that needs to be fixed by reducing emissions. So they've done it again because they think it's right, but also because there might be votes in it if they play it right. I think the ANU study is longitudinal, so they ask the same voters after the election and then after the bushfire season. And the concern about climate change has only increased. So at the moment, that might be the right strategy if you mm. think of it in those terms. But it's sort of the the point being it's sort of gotten overwhelmed by events. And anyway, we'll, we'll get to the various events it's been overwhelmed by in a minute. Let's go back slightly now to sports grants, which was the other sort of major happening in January and sort of fed negatively into the competence perceptions, again, of the government, competence and priorities perceptions of the government. So just in case you've been on Mars and you've missed the the sports grant story, let's lay it out, Sarah. What happened? What kicked it off? Well, there was this fairly stunning Auditor General's report, and we often talk about scathing Auditor General's reports, but this one was particularly damning um, that came out mid-January, which basically said that the government had overridden the advice of Sport Australia in deciding where these grants would be spent. Um, and 
the Auditor General identified a clear distributional bias in those uh, projects that were funded in in marginal coalition held seats or those that they were targeting at the election. So it was pretty extraordinary, I think, particularly because this was all on the head of Bridget McKenzie. It was very clear from the report that she and her office ran this parallel process. Um, There was a colour-coded spreadsheet, uh, I think, in the final round, which was just on the eve of the election campaign, some 73% of projects were funded despite not being recommended by the department. So as far as uh, as far as Auditor General reports go, this was an absolute doozy. Doozy with a capital D. And so then that triggers, well, not immediately, but it builds. Like I said a moment ago, Scott Morrison washed out of the bushfires with people very dissatisfied with him and his performance, with questions about whether or not he was focused on the job, what his priorities were, sports grants amplifies that as an issue. So then we get to this rolling set of circumstances because a lot of good journalistic work was done by you, Sarah, and by you, Paul, teasing out even more elements of this story once the Auditor General had mapped out a general kind of perception of a very poorly managed program. So it built and built and built until a crescendo of would Bridget McKenzie survive or on the front bench or not. So then what happened then, Paul? Yes. So there were lots of clubs complaining about missing out and stories about bizarre grants. But then the thing that undid her was that she failed to declare membership of a clay target shooting club that got a grant and that failure was a breach of ministerial standards. And so... According to a report we still haven't seen, not that I'm bitter. Anyway, go on. Yeah, so so that became um, the excuse for her to fall on her sword without conceding that the whole program was a rort, to use that technicality. Mm. So then we've got this process, which I remember quite vividly of, um, you know, those days where obviously... Morrison and Morrison's office were quite were sort of trying to negotiate Bridget out of her position and set up the circumstances for where she would have a dignified exit uh, and where no sort of broader concessions would be made about the management or otherwise of the program. But so then Bridget goes, it's a Sunday, I worked that Sunday, I re- recorded and documented that. And then a couple of like literally hop, skip and a jump later, we're into a full-blown crisis in the National Party. Mm. Sarah takes up the story. <laughs> well, I think this, this is why it, Bridget McKenzie posed such a wicked problem for the government because e- e- either way, like either they were going to have a ministerial scalp and, you know, a potential nationals implosion, which is what eventuated, or they were going to have more and more pressure on the actual sports rorts scandal, which they've got anyway. But um, but yes, the nationals then in the first parliamentary week of the year, just when Morrison is trying to get his house in order and try and get back on the front foot. We have a leadership spill. We have Barnaby Joyce challenging Michael McCormack for the leader's position and the first few days of parliament are all focused on what's going to happen in the Nationals party room. It was just complete mayhem. And so the the sort of Nats then aired, well, I suppose they've been doing that really since the election result, but they they aired a number of grievances publicly, Mm. which then... I think, reinforce those negative perceptions about the government as a whole. What are the priorities? Mm. Who are you focused on? Who are you interested in? Important point, the the first day of parliament was supposed to be a day um, to acknowledge bushfire victims and emergency services. It was supposed to be a solemn day of condolence motions and a a mark of respect for, for all of those involved in that horror season. And yet 
we have the Nationals talking about themselves. Yes, and then, uh, but it's resolved by Michael McCormick surviving this uh, close encounter with uh, Barnaby Joyce and everybody limping forward in some sort of gritted teeth fashion. To cut a very long story short, it was was not great, really, the opening of the year. <laughs> I think that's a fair comment, isn't it? They actually lost a second minister as well mm. because Matt Canavan uh, yes, quit in solidarity with, uh, with Barnaby and then didn't get his front bench job back. And then the Greens also changed their oh, leader. Yes, we've, um, yes, you know, one, one, that's right. One yes. Victorian bloke with glasses to another and just, you know, affected a lot more smoothly than every other political is that, party is does. That because no one noticed the change. <laughs> oh, God. That's true. That, ha- that also happened. So the sort of cumulative impact of that is everything feels, well, at least from where I sat, massively off the rails. It was unclear how... Morrison was going to stabilise the government, repair, well, we'll basically get the Nats in something other than a state of internal civil war and move forward. And then along comes, Paul takes up the story. Coronavirus. Uh-huh. Yes. So it's been a long ten weeks, <laughs> friends. <laughs> this is a, you'll like as we do this TikTok. I'm, you guys will get why we feel as though we have been I don't know in a tumble dryer or or something <laughs> for the for the best part of eight weeks. So yeah, the coronavirus turns up. So how does that play out initially? What happens there? Initially, it's just about the the logistics of how many direct flights are there from, from Wuhan province and what powers do border force officials have if you rock up and you, you have a runny nose or, or, or you're running a fever. And there was a lot of focus on getting the Australians who were in Wuhan yes, out, out and the Christmas. I mean, it doesn't feel like a lifetime ago, but yeah. this was only a matter of, what, a couple of weeks ago? A couple ago. of weeks ago. Yeah, about um, three weeks ago. Evacuating yeah. Australians from Wuhan and having to ha- have them quarantined in, on Christmas. Christmas Island and or Howard Springs once they came off the um, the Diamond Princess. Yes. But then it, it sort of felt remote, I guess. The, it felt remote, but the whole sort of risks, both health and economic associated with a potential pandemic, gathered pace. But the important thing, obviously, we're minutely interested in the health and economic impacts of this illness, but the critical thing here in terms of stitching together the story of the year is what did Morrison do? What was his response? Well, I think unlike with the bushfires, he sought to come out on the front foot on this issue and get ahead of the the curve. And we saw very quickly the daily briefings with Health Minister Greg Hunt and the Chief Medical Officer Brendan Murphy. And I think even at a point where I don't think the general public had sort of realised how much of a, a disruption this would be, we were getting those daily briefings. Um, and so I, th- I think perhaps that is a lesson from the bushfire response, that this was going to be something that people would be looking to the federal government for, for guidance on, or whether it was just the case that the, the government had more of a heads up about how bad this could get. Mm. And, and Dutton was asked about why did we use Christmas Island for the returning Australians? And he said, basically, well, I can't requisition a hospital in Melbourne or Sydney to confine people in. And so it became really clear that having been, you know, uh, burnt on their handling of the bushfires. Mm, excuse, the, excuse the unintended pun. They de- they decided that rather than coordinate, the federal government just has to do. And if that means you use Christmas Island instead of talking to the states, that's what you do. Mm. Mm. And it was, it, it was all, you know, it was sort of a matter of a number of practical actions which were projected publicly. This is what we're doing. This is what we're saying about the health advice, all of that sort of stuff. But there was also 
like I would describe it as a sort of a temper and a disposition that Morrison was trying to project. It seemed to me that it was sort of the antithesis of being caught flat-footed. It's, I'm on top of this, I'm calm, I'm reasonable, I'm rational, I'm pitching this at the kitchen table level. You know, you don't have to worry, Dad's come back. You know, I don't know where Dad had been, but he came back. Well, we heard we suddenly started hearing a lot about common sense. That's yes. That's been a, a big theme, common, yes. se- common, common sense, sense approach. We're taking a common sense approach. Yes, indeed. Practical common Practical. sense. Practical, yes. You know, we're just calmly and methodically getting on with things and not running around with our underpants on our head or, you know, whatever. So um, let's look forward now. Um, all of us, you know, we're not big punters or predictors at the best of times, but I think it's useful to end this conversation with thinking about whether the coronavirus, the government's economic response to it, what's the sort of risk-reward calculation for Morrison? What did I say? The, the guys are saying stimulus. Well, we're, 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 ju- we're jumping ahead to predictions, but, but, but we're, oh, we forget- we're forgetting that they just spent like billions of dollars oh today to fix it God. all. Oh, my God. Just as well I work with professionals. Okay, sorry, we missed a bit in the narrative, Paul, which was... Thursday, 12th of March. Thank you. Thursday, 12th of March, what happened? The Morrison government uh, announced a $17 billion stimulus package with $750 payments to low-income earners and welfare recipients and a bunch of money for businesses, both to go out and buy assets and depreciate them immediately and $25,000 grants theoretically to to keep people in work but no guarantee they'll do that. But this is all about avoiding a recession. Yes, basically the long and the short of it anyway. Thank you. You can all hear why I work for the best (laughs) people in the country, seriously. Forgot the stimulus package. Anyway, so, okay, so we've got the virus, we've got the stimulus package, we've got calm, methodical and practical, we've got dad turning up. We don't have a surplus. Oh, yes, we lost the surplus on the way through. And we also had this interesting... Interesting, I've described it in a piece of commentary I've done today as this sort of collective epiphany on the part of the government that we've got the mob who really literally have spent the last decade characterising cash payments and other sort of stimulus measures as some sort of wild-eyed communism, and yet we've landed today on the same wild-eyed communism, basically, that uh, Kevin Rudd and Wayne Swan deployed during the global financial crisis. So that's that's kind of interesting, that, that journey, that that, that, uh, <laughs> Again, over a couple of weeks, we've seen that shift. Yes, mm. exactly. While we were in the tumble dryer, that happened mm. too. So um, anyway, so that's all kind of fun. So do we think that the conditions arrayed before us now provide the opportunity for Morrison to stabilise his show and, and sort of make reparations for the disaster at the start of the year? Go on, Paul, do it. Um, I would say that the bushfires had an impact, but... You know, there's so much time and room still to outperform expectations. So, you know, no matter how disappointed people were about his handling of that, very competent uh, handling of another crisis in the form of coronavirus is going to get you big ticks. And we we don't know in six months' time, you know, which will be the dominant impression that people have, you know, competence or or the fumbling of of the bushfire issue. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's going to be particularly interesting because... You know, they they promised a surplus and it's not going to be delivered. They spent years criticising a stimulus and now they have to have to deliver one. Do people 
pick up on those contradictions and mark them down for making those the measures of success or do they say, well, when when it came to the crunch, they actually did what, what was necessary? Mm. Yes, yeah, well, very well framed. Sarah, what do you think? Look, I, I think it depends on a couple of things. I think it depends on whether or not we do have a recession. Mm. And I think Morrison has made it clear that the government is prepared to spend more if more is necessary. If the government doesn't do enough, if people start losing their jobs, which is always, you know, is obviously why we are trying to avoid a recession because once people lose their jobs, it's very hard to get them back. I think if they don't do the job and keep people in jobs and people are then critical of the government, then that could end very badly for Morrison. If they pull off what Labor pulled off in the global financial crisis and keep Australia out of recession, then I think they probably will get some credit for that. And particularly given it has been quite the road to Damascus for for the coalition to embark on some of that stimulatory spending, such as cash handouts to households. Um, So I I think it probably depends a bit on those things. But I I think the ground is there for them to stage a recovery, depending on on what happens. And Mm. we don't really know how this virus is going to play out. Well, that's the the really interesting thing about this, interesting and scary, right, at a very visceral level for people. Um, This is very hard. It's just almost impossible to predict. Again, I'd said in the piece, more like astrology than economics. I mean, because there's so many unknowns, you know, it's hard to know really whether this will be short, sharp downturn followed by a rapid escalation up. Mm. So the V, the V or the U or whichever letter you want to use. So Paul, you're champing at the bit. Go oh, I was just, just going to say that after the GFC, the the conventional wisdom was, you know, Labor didn't get any credit because pe- not as many people did lose their jobs and you don't get, you know, you don't get credit for avoiding bad things because they never happened to people. I think it's going to be interesting whether the same happens for the coalition because they are, for whatever reason, more trusted as economic managers and it's possible that they'll just get more credit even, you know, if that seems unfair to to some people. And they're already starting to lay the groundwork with like, oh, the coronavirus is, you know, it's so much more complicated than just a yeah. little a little yeah. global financial, financial crisis. Blip. Just yeah. to just yeah. like that old thing. You know, like but, but also that banks business. failing and, yes. you know. The, the, ba- biggest, the biggest economic downturn since the Great Depression. Yeah, but, but, like they, they want to set this expectations management now where if it's a shallow recession or if we avoid recession that this is a colossal achievement, whereas like avoiding the GFC was like small beer. Yeah, exactly, mm. walking the park. And also on that point, which which I completely agree with, is if we get to the next election and there are still economic uncertainties in the system, does that benefit the coalition or disadvantage the coalition? I think that you know, the general wisdom is that it probably benefits an incumbent coalition government and mm. that because people won't want to take the risk of changing government. So in some ways this the coronavirus for politically for the Morrison government is probably a bit of a, a bit of a, a saviour. Yeah, and it, again we've sort of both of you have said this, but just reinforcing uh, well, the two points, one, the uncertainty of all of this and why our predictions are heavily hedged, but two, just that general observation that we've all made that this is an issue in their pocket. Mm. It sort of, it plays to economic security and practical security, which are two issues that the coalition, you know, for whatever reason is marked up by voters more than Labor is marked up by voters in that area. So the frame is suitable for Morrison. But Paul's question is interesting, is whether if the intervention works, if we do avoid a recession, if it's short and sharp and ugly for a bit, but then fine and everything rockets back, 
do they get credit for that or is that just expected and then, you know, where we end up on the other side? The other thing is they didn't have a lot to be talking about otherwise this year. Like <laughs> yeah, they didn't, yes. they went to the Very election without a huge policy agenda. They did deep dives in the first few months to come up with one, which we didn't really see what the what the huge policy ideas were that came out of that. Most of the issues that were dominating the national conversation were why don't you have a climate policy? The crossbench endlessly shirt fronting them about having a national integrity commission uh, and a religious freedom bill that they're split on and don't even want to bring to parliament. So it's like they actually didn't have a lot of other things to be getting on with. Like it's kind of a blessed relief for them. Yes, that's true because it's sort of it's a big issue and and just one sort of interesting thought to end up on one of the issues or one of the, the problems that plagued the Rudd government after the GFC was that those guys came to government, they had a massive agenda, they were determined to persist with the agenda regardless of the economic mm. conditions uh, that created that sense of chaos for them, that they were, tr- they were trying to, you know, do so much so fast uh, that everybody, including the government, including Rudd himself, got mm. overwhelmed and that led to the events of Julia Gillard and all of that sort of stuff. So anyway, it's got to be genuinely fascinating this 12 months in politics and hopefully not quite as chaotic as the first four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or however long it's been. I really have lost count. Thank you both. I really do appreciate it. I know everyone listening appreciates it. We appreciate you for listening for sharing the podcast and growing the audience and all of that jazz. Uh, As always, I appreciate Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer of this show. We'll be back again next week. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.